Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this special edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Governor Brian Kemp has voiced his support for so-called constitutional carry legislation. It would make it easier for Georgians to carry handguns. But what are the potential public health consequences? I'll speak with Dr. Mark Rosenberg, formerly of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Now, he established the part of the agency that researches gun violence. Also, we'll have a conversation with Democratic State Senator Sally Harrell, and she's pushing legislation this session that would mandate gun safety training in the state. All that's coming up, but first this. As heard on NPR, closing arguments got underway today in the federal hate crimes trial of the men convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery. The three white men, Gregory and Travis McMichael and William Bryan, are already serving life in prison after murder convictions of Ahmaud Arbery. This trial is for charges of violating Arbery's civil rights. And it's moved faster than the state murder trial did. Now, during proceedings last week, prosecutors showed text messages, social media posts, and recorded jailhouse phone calls highlighting what they say illustrate racist views that led the men to target Arbery in the first place. Arbery's mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones, spoke outside the courthouse before today's proceedings. I think that the DOJ, they presented the case very, very well. I think that, like I shared on Friday, that they did a very good job of presenting the evidence, and we have a very good chance of getting a, a, a guilty verdict on all, on, on all counts. The McMichaels and Brian have pleaded not guilty to the charges, and none of the men testified on their own behalf during the trial. In other news, former Georgia Governor Sonny Perdue is poised to become the next chancellor of the state's public university system. His supporters say Purdue has the executive experience needed for the job. But as our education reporter Martha Dalton reports, some students and faculty strongly disagree. One of those people is University of North Georgia professor Matthew Bodie. I'm outraged and disappointed that the Board of Regents chose an unqualified candidate to lead the system. Unqualified, Bodie says, because Purdue lacks experience working in colleges and universities. He has plenty of executive skills and administrative skills. I just don't think he cares about higher education nor knows how it should work. The Board of Regents believes Purdue does know. They voted last week to make him the sole finalist for the chancellor job. Beforehand, Board Chair Harold Reynolds touted Purdue's public service experience. He was twice elected by the people of this state to serve as our governor, and he has served our nation as the United States Secretary of Agriculture. He was also the chair of the Senate Higher Education Committee during his time in the Georgia General Assembly. But some students are critical of Purdue's record on education. We had a history of 20 years of defunding education on the K-12 through level, and a lot of that happened under his purview of governor. Yana Batra was just six years old when Purdue left office. Now she's a senior in high school 
headed to Georgia Tech in the fall. She doesn't like that Purdue okayed an estimated $2 billion in cuts to schools when he was governor, but that's not the only reason Botcher doesn't think he should lead the system she'll soon be part of. He, at one point, I think, campaigned to keep Georgia state flag a Confederate flag. And so I knew that his record threatened the inclusivity and the equal access that I prize in my public education. While Purdue supporters see a no-nonsense conservative leader that will keep the university system on track, critics say he's not up to the job. They fear he'll support budget cuts and interfere with curriculum, making academia more political. Martha Dalton, WABE News. Finally, in a tribute to the city's famed tree canopy, Atlanta United has introduced a green and white alternate jersey. The green uniform, or kit as it's known in soccer, is made from recycled material. Team president Darren Eels spoke Saturday at Piedmont Park, where the team unveiled the new uniform. We've got the tree line with the uh, geometric pattern that rises up it, and it's a different color palette for us. But, you know, we thought we'd branch out, if you'll excuse the pun, and, uh, and go for it, and we love the kit. <laughs> branch out. Eel says the uniform reflects the team's commitment to sustainability and also pledged to plant a thousand trees in conjunction with Trees Atlanta. Atlanta United begins its, its new season is coming Sunday at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. We begin today's special programming regarding not just guns in Georgia, but with a focus on gun safety and gun violence. And all this centers around current legislation that Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has been clear about supporting. Efforts to push for a new state law that would loosen requirements to carry a handgun in public. Now here's Governor Kemp last month. Building a safer, stronger Georgia starts with hardworking Georgians having the ability to protect themselves and their families. In the face of rising violent crime across the country, law-abiding citizens should have their constitutional rights protected, not undermined. And while this position is greatly, has recently become popular for others as we enter the campaign season, my position has remained the same. I believe the United States Constitution grants the citizens of our state the right to carry a firearm without state government approval. For law-abiding Georgians, their carry permit is the founding document of our nation. And I look forward to working with the members of the House and the Senate, many who are here today, and groups like the NRA and GA2A on legislation some of which has already been filed to get constitutional carry across the finish line this legislative session. Now, shortly after the governor's announcement to expand permitless carry, I had a conversation with Georgia Representative Lucy McBath. 
you know, this past year has seen an explosion in gun sales and with it, you know, it's a 30% rise in the murder rate at a time, you know, when the data becomes increasingly clear that more guns in the hands of those who should not have them just results in more deaths of those who should still be alive today. And our Republican officials are just simply trying to make it easier for anyone to wield guns around our children or our families. And we just need to pass legislation that will keep our families safer. Legislation like universal background checks, red flag laws, bills that the majority of the American people already support. Mm Now, as we talk more about legislation, recently Georgia Senator Sally Harrell introduced Senate Bill 344 that would require Georgians looking to purchase a gun or guns to enroll in a firearm training safety course. Now, Senator Harrell, who represents Georgia's 40th Senate District, which includes portions of DeKalb, Fulton and Gwinnett County, Gwinnett Counties, joins me now to talk more about this and the state of gun violence in Georgia, gun safety and, of course, Senate Bill 344. Senator Harrell, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. It's an honor to be here today. We have so much to talk about, but I just want to start by getting your thoughts on this. Through your lens, what do you think folks get wrong about the Second Amendment and then also measures, any measures related to that that might want to require some type of regulatory or or provisions in terms of safety or or even just what type of guns folks can can own? Do you understand that question? I do. And obviously, the Second Amendment does give us a right to bear arms, um, but it doesn't say that we do that without regulation. And for someone who says, well, but perhaps you all are, are regulating too much. And some the other side of that, some will say, well, we need to have more what we call sensible gun laws. So through your lens, what's a sensible gun law? You know, this move towards having no regulation of guns or being able to carry a gun uh, with no focus on on responsibilities is a fairly recent uh, phenomenon. I told my kids uh, who are now in college when the Parkland shooting happened that there was actually an assault rifle ban in their lifetime because that ban ended in 2004. So when they were little, there was actually an assault rifle ban. Likewise, if you look at, at Georgia law, um, we had a major gun reform initiative back in 2010, where they actually tightened gun regulations. Prior to that, you could carry a handgun, and as long as it was carried in the open, you could do so without a license. But in 2010, our legislature uh, decided that if you were going to carry a a handgun openly that you needed to be licensed. So ever since in Georgia, ever since 2010, we've gone in the direction of less licensure and being able to carry guns in more places. Someone listening may say, well, Senator, do you have or do you believe there is enough data? And perhaps we'll probably get into this with our next guest, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, when we talk about what we know about gun regulations, and as it relates to gun violence. And that could be in other states or even here in Georgia. Or is that fair to correlate the two? Well, a lot of my interest focuses not just on violence, but in accidents 
and suicides, Mm -hmm. suicides. So I think it's much more, you need to take a much more comprehensive look at it than just looking at violence because the pushback you begin to get against regulations is people who are not violent with guns feel then like they're being punished. Mm -hmm. But really when you look at the damage that's done with guns, so much more of it is, is, is done because of, happens because of accidents or even suicides than just violence. Senator, I want to play another clip from the conversation I had with U.S. Representative Lucy McBath, of course, here in Georgia, where she talked about combating gun violence through legislation. There's no one piece of legislation that will cure the extremist gun culture that we're living in. There absolutely is not. But, you know, anything that we can do to help curb the gun violence in America is what we need to be doing. You know, legislation like red flag law that Mm -hmm. I introduced and has been marked up by the Judiciary Committee, and we'll be voting for that on the House floor. You know, these are tools that give loved ones and law enforcement the ability to ensure that those who pose a threat to themselves or others do not have access to firearms. You know, also with background checks for all gun sales, child access prevention legislation, the numbers of children that have had access to unsecured arms and guns in their homes has exponentially gone up under COVID. People who have access to guns that are, you know, in crisis from either committing harm to themselves or others, those numbers have gone up exponentially under COVID. So there's no one piece of legislation, but many pieces of legislation to stem the different and vast facets of the extremist gun culture that we're living in. Senator, your reaction to some of the legislation that Representative McBath talked about here? I think Representative McBath is exactly right. If we're going to have so many guns in our country, if so many people are going to possess guns, then that actually increases the need for multiple kinds of initiatives. She's right. There's no one answer to this. And and that's why I the idea of Uh, training, firearm training, required firearm training really appealed to me because that's something that can touch every single person uh, that that carries a firearm. Um, So you can prevent accidents, per se. Uh, Remember the case in DeKalb County where the little four-year-old boy on New Year's Day, it was 2010, Mm -hmm. four years old, sitting in a church with his mother mm-hmm. was hit by a stray bullet that came through the church ceiling. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. That kind of accident can be prevented if everyone does some level of training who uses a firearm and learns through that training how dangerous celebratory firing can mm-hmm. be. Then a certain number of people aren't going to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. There's just so much benefit from from training. Well, let's get into Senate Bill 344, which is a, a great segue now because you introduced this. Let's break it down for our, our listeners. What are some of the provisions in Senate Bill 344? My first bill that I filed when I was elected to the Senate was to repeal campus carry which was a law that had been passed two years before Mm -hmm. that allowed anyone age 21 or older to carry a gun on a college campus. When I was trying to get a hearing for that bill, there were some some news stories about it. And there was one student 
who said that he wasn't sure we should not be able to have guns on college campuses, but he thought that students, if they were going to have a gun on college, college campus, should be trained. Mm -hmm. And that really caught my attention. So then I started talking with other legislators, particularly Republican legislators in the Georgia legislature, because they are the majority party. And I was really surprised to find that a number of Republican legislators agreed to me with me um, that that people should be trained and not just young people, but but everyone. So I started working on this legislation then. And as I talked to various Republicans, I changed the legislation. I, I compromised and I put things in that I might not want in, in it, but but they would. And um, I was ready to drop that bill at the beginning of this session. But then the governor introduced his permitless carry. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, well, how can you require training if you don't have a permitting process? So I had to completely redraft the bill. And I, I did so in a very broad fashion because I really thought we'd have trouble passing this bill given the governor's initiative. But I detached it from the permitting uh, process mm -hmm. and, and refiled a bill that was very broad just to keep the conversation going. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Senator Sally Harrell. We're talking about Senate Bill 344 that would require George, Georgians looking to purchase a gun or guns to enroll in a firearm training safety course. Now, let's back up a little bit for our listeners, because would this training come from a, a state identified entity or could they just go to any gun safety forum or class or what have you? Right. It would be need to be managed by the state. Um, think about driver's training, because mm -hmm. this is really very similar. We don't allow people to drive cars without showing some level of proficiencies. So there's there's um, there's driver services. Mm -hmm. And so you would have an entity of government who would serve in that capacity. Um, but then you can use vendors to do the training and there could be, you, you could have various options for doing doing the training. Well, let's get into the, some specifics of the training because as you know, and, and let's be really clear, I don't know about when you were 16, but I know when I was 16, I shouldn't be behind anybody's car and behind the wheel of any car. Um, so let's talk about in terms of, does this bill talk about how much in terms of hours and, and also, you know, age limit here? Yes, it would not change the, the age limit. Um, and the details are really, honestly, are not there yet. I wrote this bill in a broad way in mm -hmm. order to move the conversation along, and the details then would follow. But do you, is that enough, though, so far? What's been the feedback? I, we know, we know you, in terms of who signed on to it, but is this, you have bi bipartisan support for this bill? I did have bipartisan support, but when the governor announced his permitless carry, that support went away. And that shows the power of the governor's office in, in Georgia. Um, I really wish that the legislature was a little more separate from the governor's office because there's power in the legislature and there's power in the executive branch. Unfortunately, I found that once the governor made his announcement, my Republican support of this bill uh, went away. But I will still continue to push for a, a hearing. So like we said, we can move it forward. Have you, did you talk to those Republicans who were in support and ask them, hey, what happened? What's up? They said they could not 
move forward with it. If they wanted to get any other legislation passed, then they couldn't move forward with this bill. What are you making it? It's disappointing. I, I see the legislature as a separate branch of government mm-hmm. from the executive branch. The branches are separate for a reason. And we shouldn't give up our legislative voice because of a stand the executive branch makes. Senator, how optimistic are you that this bill is going to go anywhere? Because someone listening may say, well, keep the conversation going means it ain't going nowhere. Excuse my vernacular there, just just keeping it real, you know? Well, gun safety legislation hasn't gone anywhere in Georgia for quite a number of years. Uh, It it goes back to 2010 Mm -hmm. when we started making that shift to having guns everywhere. Um, We've had a very difficult time uh, even getting public hearings on gun safety legislation. I worked so hard on the campus carry issue that 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 law was wildly unpopular in my district. Mm -hmm. And I never even succeeded in getting a hearing for that for that issue. So we are having difficulty moving anything forward that has to do with gun safety legislation in Georgia under the current climate. If this were not a major election year, a major election cycle that we're going to be in or we're in, do you think this bill might have had a chance then of surviving? Yes, that certainly would have made the situation easier. I do have a bill I'm working on that I do think I can get bipartisan support for, mm-hmm. and, and that has to do with mental health. You know, mm-hmm. the legislature right now is uh, very focused on mental health, and a huge number of gun uh, gun accidents or not accidents but um, damage from guns is is through suicide Mm -hmm. and so i'm looking at a bill that would create a state registry that would allow people who know they have mental illness say bipolar disorder um, it would allow them to voluntarily register themselves to be on a no no cell list Mm -hmm. so so that if they have an episode where they start feeling suicidal they've set things up ahead of time so they cannot go to a store and purchase a gun um, spontaneously Uh, and i do think i'll be able to get some bipartisan support on that bill because of the focus on on mental health. In this bill, you'd also call for gun owners to have their guns stored in a lockbox. Um, one might argue, well, maybe that should be done uh, on a county-by-county situation. Uh, I wouldn't see that being done on a county-by-county. Uh, you want consistency, consistency, I think, in those laws across the state. County by county, I think, would be very confusing. You know, you you store your gun this way if you're if you're here, and a different way if you're there. One of my core beliefs I have about public policy is that it should be simple, and that fails the simplicity test. And Senator, you and I both know we can drive a truck through simplicity (laughs) and what should be when it comes to laws. Um, Before I I let you go, as I mentioned, uh, this obviously it's a a huge election year. Through your lens, what has been the the atmosphere, the tone down at the state capitol this session? It's been a tough, it's been tough so far at the legislature this year, and that's because of redistricting. You know, we met in a special session to do redistricting for Congress and the state legislature, but what we left undone was all of the local 
redistricting, the county commissions, the school board. And that has just torn us apart. As they say, all politics is local, right? The toughest politics are local. And I certainly have seen that uh, through the first half of the legislative session this year. What are your thoughts on former Governor Sonny Perdue as the top candidate to become chief of the state's public college and university system? What do you make of that? You know, Rose, the Board of Regents was created uh, was was created to be a governing board to keep politics out of our universities. Otherwise, the legislature would be governing the universities just like they do K-12. Um, so when I heard about Sonny Perdue being our chancellor, I thought, one, he doesn't have the experience in higher ed. Two, he's a political figure. And to me, that just politicizes the Board of Regents and the university system more than it should be politicized. Hmm. Georgia State Senator Sally Harrell, we've been talking about Senate Bill 344 that would require Georgians looking to purchase a gun or guns to enroll in a firearm training safety course administered by the Georgia Public Safety Training Center, also some other provisions. Senator, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it as we continue the conversations in the next segment um, regarding gun, gun safety, and gun violence. Thank you for participating in today's program. Thank you so much for having me, Rose. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As we just talked about, and you should know, Georgia's General Assembly is bustling at the moment. And while that may not be unusual, a reminder, it's a big election year, so measures are surely meant to attract voters. Of course, all seats are up for re-election this year in our state house, as well as statewide and, of course, the gubernatorial race. Now, this legislative session, as we talked about, top law- lawmakers at the state capitol are pushing to make it easier for Georgians to carry guns in public. Just had this conversation with Senator Sally Harrell. Republicans in the General Assembly, with the support of Governor Brian Kemp, are moving ahead with a bill that will allow Georgians to carry house- handguns without the need for a permit. Now, it's what supporters call constitutional carry. And we should note, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Georgia has the 14th highest rate of firearm fatalities in the country. And so, a major question, how could change in state's gun laws affect gun deaths here in Georgia? Dr. Mark Rosenberg served 20 years with the CDC and helped establish the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. It studies firearm injuries in the U.S. Then he went on to lead the Decatur-based Task Force for Global Health. Dr. Rosenberg joins me now. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Rose, and thanks for raising this important topic for a closer look. I want to start with the same question I asked the senator, which is through your lens, what do you think people might get wrong when we talk about Second Amendment and then as it relates to legislation that might regulate, whether it's with gun safety or you know, who can carry and who can own a firearm. Through your lens, what do you think people get wrong about the two? I think the biggest thing that people get wrong is that they think they can vote on legislation without knowing whether this law will save lives or kill more people. We put our politicians in a really unfair position. We're asking them to vote on constitutional carry, and we don't know if that will make Georgians safer or be a death sentence for many more people in our state. They don't know. And I can't think of any other area where we ask them to vote 
on a matter of life or death without knowing what their vote means and what it's going to do. Let's talk about that then, Dr. Rosenberg, and let's deal with data because you're a guy that deals with data. You know, when folks say, well, can you point to something? Is there a correlation in terms of a state's gun laws and to gun fatalities in that state? Absolutely, Rose. It's been shown time and time again that the more guns you have, the higher the rate of homicides and gun suicides. It's been shown over and over and over. Also, the looser gun laws you have, the more gun homicides, the more gun suicides you will have. It's clearly proven and held up by the data. Then you may know the next question then. Someone says, okay, Dr. Rosenberg, where is this data? Where can I find it? You can find it on the CDC website. You can also find it from the Violence Prevention Center website. And worse comes to worse, Google it. It's out there for everyone to see. And I think all of the organizations realize now that in an area where there's so much distrust, we have to make the data transparent and share the data. And for the first time in many years, CDC has a director who says this problem of gun violence is a public health problem. Mm -hmm. And her charge is to prevent preventable deaths. And she says this is something that the CDC is going to take on. She's courageous in speaking up about this. Then when we talk about how do we combat that, the gun violence and the gun fatalities, is the, the at the top of that list, Dr. Rosenberg, you're saying you have to start with legislation, with the laws, looking at what's on the books, what's not on the books, and then begin the process of working through all of that. Is that where you begin? I think you begin by asking four simple questions, Rose. Mm-hmm. And you start by looking at the problem of gun violence. We're not looking at all forms of gun of all forms of violence, but we're looking at gun violence. Mm-hmm. And the four questions we should be asking ourselves are first, what's the problem? Who gets shot? Where? When? Under what circumstances? What's the relationship between the shooter and the victim? Mm-hmm. With what kind of weapon? Where does the weapon come from? But what's the problem? And are these rates increasing or decreasing? The second question we should be asking is, what are the causes? What's the role of gangs? What's the role of drugs and alcohol? What's the role of domestic violence? Mm -hmm. What's the role of kids having too easy access to firearms? What's the role of mental illness? But what's the role of poverty and lack of education Mm -hmm. and discrimination and racism? We should be asking, what's the cause? The third question we should be asking is, what works? What works to prevent gun violence? And at the same time, when we say what works, what prevents gun violence and what works without infringing on the rights of law-abiding gun owners? Mm -hmm. You need both of those components to say what works. And then the fourth question we should be asking is, once you have something that works in a controlled setting, how do you scale it up? How do you translate it into legislation and policy and programs? But those questions, the question we lack the most and the most critical for us is what works. We don't know simple, basic things. We don't know, for example, if arming teachers, mm-hmm. arming every teacher in a school is going to prevent school shootings or whether it will result in more kids dying. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the policy of 
permitless carry will result in. There's some indications that it will increase gun homicides, but we don't know what works. And we can find out things that work both to reduce gun violence and to protect the rights of law-abiding gun owners. And Dr. Rosenberg, before we get to those four, you know, in a more deeper conversation, someone listening says, well, those are great. But now we have to take the politics out of this and get everybody. I know it's a cliche, get everybody in the same room and you got to change the mindset. Now, everyone is is in agreement now that when it comes to mental health legislation, we got to change the mindset about stigma. Right. So now we're talking about you have these four components here, but you the main barrier is the politics of all this. How do you break through that first? I think when we talk, it's a really good question, Rose, when we talk about the politics of gun violence, people refer to the NRA and the gun lobby as a very strong force. It's so strong that a lot of people are afraid to even look at the problem of guns. They want to look at gun violence without looking at the guns. Mm-hmm. That's about as crazy as you can get. And the reason is that CDC started doing research on gun violence prevention in the 1980s because it was a very big problem and that's what people were dying from. They weren't dying so much from infectious diseases. And the director of CDC said, let's find out the answers to what's really killing people. And when they started to look at that, they said, look at what happened in a parallel area. Look at what happened to people being killed in road crashes. Mm -hmm. And the government had invested $200 million a year for 50 years, and it brought about a minor miracle. It brought the road deaths way down. People totally redesigned the car. They developed front airbags and side airbags Mm -hmm. and seatbelts and elevated brake lights and front impact protection, rollover protection. And bit by bit, the rate of deaths on the highways came way down. We've saved 600,000 lives from that research. We looked at gun violence and we said, what do we know from our research? And it turned out that the government had invested almost nothing in looking at the causes and ways to prevent gun deaths. And we said, let's start to do the research. The NRA developed a strategy that said, look, it's either you do the research or you keep your guns. But if you do this research, you're all going to result in losing all your guns. And the people were scared. They listened to that. And politicians are scared that if they do anything to address guns, they'll lose their seat. They'll lose their position. It's not like that, and it doesn't have to be like that. In other words, through your lens, the gun lobbying effectively pressured Congress and you're saying for decades now, that's why we don't we, we haven't had funding to even research this like we did for, you know, car fatalities. <laughs> that what you're saying? Exactly. The research was stopped for more than 20 years, Rose. Questions that are a matter of life or death, we stopped looking at. The government stopped. Some very brave researchers, some foundations, some academic places continue to do some research. But the major research has to come from the government, and that was stopped for 20 years. Two years ago, it was restarted, and that's a very, very good thing. But as a result, we don't really know what works. And the NRA, when they said either you do the research and look at guns and gun safety, or you keep your guns, 
that is not true. In fact, good research will find a way to do both. We'll find a way to reduce gun violence and save lives and not infringe on the rights of law-abiding gun owners. There are things that work to do both. We can look closely at the guns. We can mm -hmm. look closely at the problem and know that that doesn't mean we want to take guns away from law-abiding gun owners. We can protect their rights and protect the people. The voice you hear is Dr. Mark Rosenberg. He served 20 years with the CDC and helped establish the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. And we're talking about the state of public health research on gun injuries and violence while Georgia lawmakers consider making it easier to carry handguns in the state. Well, let's shift for a moment and talk about that. I think I may know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What do you make of George Governor Brian Kemp? And he's came out last month and says, I'm going to support legislation that basically what they, in terms of through their lens, constitutional carry. What do you make of this bill and the fact that it's moving through the General Assembly and more than likely it will become law? I think that Governor Kemp is asking the legislators to take on something that's totally unfair. He's asking them to vote for this legislation, which may be a death sentence to many people in Georgia. He does not know that this will save lives. He doesn't know the effects of it. And to ask people to vote this into law without knowing what it's going to do is totally unfair. And the legislators also ought to say, we're not going to vote on this till we know what it's going to do, what the impact will be, what the effects will be. And we can find out. This research has been restarted. We can wait to find out what permitless carry does to suicides and gun homicides. We do know that more guns in a state results in more deaths. We do know that. We don't know that more people carrying weapons will save lives and prevent assaults. We don't know that. The thing is, we can find out. Let's do the work. Let's find the answers before we rush to judgment. I want to talk about something you just said, because we do know that research, and this is research, anyone can look it up, from Pew, says suicides have long accounted for the majority of gun deaths here in the U.S. And so this is the question. If we're expanding access to guns, it kind of runs counter to Georgia lawmakers' current efforts to address mental health issues. Do you agree with that? I think mental health issues absolutely need to be addressed. Our system is grossly inadequate for providing mental health care in this state. It's terrible, and absolutely we need to do better. But people have hoped that they could find a small group of mentally ill people who are responsible for most of the gun violence in the state, in the country. And that's not going to happen. Most violent people are not mentally ill. And most mentally ill people don't commit violence. Do we need to try everything we can to stop some of those? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But that's not the answer to most of our gun homicides. It's not the answer to most of our gun suicides. Better mental health is absolutely necessary. But that shouldn't divert us from looking at the problem of guns and guns in the hands of people who should not have them. So and also in those four components that you mentioned earlier, you talked about causes and you mentioned poverty 
and you, you mentioned education, and you mentioned so many quality of life factors. That's a whole nother conversation we could have, but I do want to give you a chance to make the connection for our listeners, if you will, and when you talk about what role poverty plays in this, low-income communities, and how gun violence is at the core of that. And discrimination and racism Absolutely. are so important. You know, if I were to tell you that the rate of gun deaths among young black men is twice as high as the rate of gun deaths among young white men, you'd say, wow, that's not fair, that's not right. Well, I'll tell you, it's not twice as high. It's not three times as high. Four times, five, six, would you believe eight times to 12 times as high as the rate among young white men? This is a disparity that screams out for more attention. And when people start to look at some of the reasons, they look at long-term impacts of discrimination, of poverty, of mm -hmm. lack of access to education, of lack of jobs, lack of hope among people. These are things that take a long time to start to change. But the best time to start changing them would have been 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. The second best time is now. And we can do things for prevention. We can focus on prevention. We can focus on change for the good. I don't think that permitless carry is going to get us to where we want to go. Dr. Rosenberg, is there a state that you can point to that perhaps could be a template for Georgia lawmakers to look at in terms of what's working? I, it's a very good question, Rose. There are states that have more gun laws and that have lower gun homicide and gun suicide rates. In fact, as you mentioned, the statistics put Georgia at number 14 or 15 in gun death rates in the country. And if you look at the top five states, they all have more gun death, gun violence prevention laws and fewer guns. Fewer guns, better laws, save lives. And they can save lives without impacting the rights of law-abiding gun owners. There are things that do work to do that. Things like uniform background checks mm -hmm. that are systematically and evenly and effectively enforced. We have laws against people convicted of domestic violence from carrying guns and owning guns. Those work. They don't take the rights away from law-abiding gun owners. Red flag laws that look at people at very high risk of killing themselves or killing someone else, adjudicated by a judge or law enforcement officers, these can be very effective in saving lives. There are many things that those good states are trying to put in place and the things that we can copy, things that we should think about. Full disclosure, I want our audience to know that I actually co-moderated a mayoral forum where you presented in a much more deeper and detailed fashion than you are today on this program to then the mayoral candidates as it relates to gun violence here in not just Atlanta, but obviously it's all across the nation. With the information you have, Dr. Rosenberg, and the data that you have to support it, have you had a chance to, have you been invited to the Capitol? Has anyone said, hey... Let's listen to Dr. Rosenberg. Let's hear what he has to say. Or just folks not interested down there. I have not been invited to the Capitol, Rose, but this is an area that I care deeply about. And mm -hmm. if I can be helpful 
in both protecting the rights of law-abiding gun owners and reducing gun violence. I'm happy to do that. I was very encouraged at that forum that the mayor of Atlanta, the new mayor, Andre Dawkins, Dickens, mm-hmm. Dickens is interested in gun violence prevention, and he's an engineer by training. And this problem requires a systems approach. There are many parts of the system that need to be addressed that can make a difference. And uh, I'm hopeful and optimistic that we will. Everyone is affected by gun violence. There's no one who's not scared of it. People who lose their children, people who lose their spouse, people who were injured for life. People are scared about this, rightfully so. The gun violence rates in Georgia have gone up 30 to 35 Mm percent in the last year or two. That's an astounding and scary increase. We don't have to live this way. So where do we go from here, Dr. Rosenberg? What ultimately needed then to get gun violence and injury, if, if you, for lack of better words here, under control? But even before, with that question, I feel silly because before we get there, it's about getting people to recognize the problem, which goes back to that the, the first of your four components here. You're right, Rose. We can do much better. We can start by realizing we shouldn't be afraid to look at the problem of guns as a big part of gun violence. Because looking at the problem, enforcing laws that don't infringe on the rights of law-abiding gun owners doesn't interfere with the rights of legitimate law-abiding gun owners. We can look at the problem, we can solve the problem without taking their guns away. We did that with cars. We didn't have to take cars away. We didn't ban cars, but they're much, much safer. We can do the same thing in this area. But we start by looking at the problem. Let's get our statistics. Let's get our data. Not just have stories that say how terrible the problem is, but let's look at who's getting shot, where, when, under what circumstances, with what kind of weapons, where do they come from. Let's look at the causes. How much of these are from gang violence? How many are associated with drugs Mm -hmm. and alcohol? How many with mental illness? How many with domestic violence? Let's start to look at the problem, figure out what works. That's the key. Let's start looking at what works. Let's collect information in our state to find out what works in our state. If we cover our eyes, if we don't look at what's happening, if we don't use our heads, we'll continue to suffer. I take it if you had an opportunity to be in conversation with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, everything you just laid out to me and our listeners, that's what that's what you would say to him? I would love to talk to the governor. I believe that he understands and can understand what works and what doesn't work. And we can provide him that kind of information and we can help him gather the information he needs to rule effectively and protect the rights of law-abiding gun owners and save lives in our state. He can do both. And I think that's a win-win for him and for the citizens of Georgia. Dr. Mark Rosenberg served 20 years with the CDC and helped establish the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. We've been talking about the state of public health research on gun injuries as well as violence. While Georgia lawmakers are considering making it easier to carry handguns in the state. Dr. Rosenberg, thank you so much for taking the time as always. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Rose. Thanks for pushing this important issue. 
And that's it for this special edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel are our producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's special program or any other. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And don't, don't forget to remember to check out our new series, which will be launching uh, next week. It's Closer Look's Paycheck to Paycheck series. How you living? How you doing? And for more information on that, head to wabe.org slash paycheck. If you missed any of today's show, it's online as well. And you can also listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.